This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we go through the mailbag, which is literally brimming with feedback. I suppose we had to expect it. If we start talking about things like least favourite episodes, then that's a red rag to a ball where it comes to Doctor Who fans. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Doctor Who podcast, where, as James said in the intro, we are attacking the inbox, which has become swelled to gargantuan proportions um, (laughs) after our discussion on least favourite episodes. We really have uh, stoked up the furnace here, haven't we, James? Well, we have, and it's not just least favourite episodes you seem to have an opinion on. It's been all of our recent episodes, which, quite frankly, is really, really good because we love hearing what you think. Um, It's one thing seeing, you know several million listeners uh, clock up on our highly advanced computer program that's written especially to keep track of the number of downloads we have but actually receiving feedback from you in the inbox is is wonderful and uh, we've had feedback on Dragonfire we've had feedback on the least favorite episodes and we've had feedback about people going to school with Doctor Who stars so I'm quite looking forward to the next 30 minutes or so Lisa just uh, just finding out what our listeners think of the show and their experiences within fandom. I think there's a lot of fun to be had in the next half hour. But first, uh, it would be remiss of us to to not mention the the sad news that Caroline John uh, passed away this month. This came as a particular... Uh, shock to me as as, I, as I'd recently been watching uh, Inferno again mm. with uh, my other half uh, it's part of our, our love affair with, with Pertwee and we both turned to each other midway through this is prior to knowing the news uh, and commented on, on what a strong performance she, she, she gave both as, as the real world companion and, and the parallel and the parallel Liz and and the new it, it had already happened at that point mm. but um, the news came out only a couple of days later really really struck me that uh, she's an undervalued companion Oh, hugely. I mean, I think people remember the fact that she was only in four stories, but remember three of those stories were seven episodes long. She was with us for 25 episodes in total. And for me, I I think really helped, you know, shift the tone from the Trousen years into the, the Pertwee years. And certainly for that first season, really helped cement what the Third Doctor was all about. And she was she was a fantastic companion. Uh, she was a really really nice person, and I, I met her at a couple of signings. and And one thing just didn't strike me, and that was her age. She was seventy two. And when, mm. when I read that in in the um, the newspaper, I think it was, she got official obituaries and a lot of the broadsheets here in the UK. I was really surprised, and I thought they got her age wrong, but uh, it took me a little while to think, well, you know, Pertwee became the Doctor in 1970, you know, that's 42 years ago, as we're um, as we're sitting in this highly sophisticated caravan recording this now, and for some reason, she just never, ever gave me a sense of being anything older than, well, probably the age that I perceived her to be on television. 
No, uh, that, that's, that's something that struck me. Uh, but um, yeah, wonderful talent, uh, sadly missed. We may well come back in a future episode of DWP, perhaps when Tom and Trevor are with us and uh, talk about one of the stories that she, uh, she featured in on television. Uh, but for the time being, Ian and Michelle have been listening to the Companion Chronicle range and Caroline John recorded a fair number of Companion Chronicles. So what you're about to hear now is Ian and Michelle's review of Shadow of the Past. This time around, Ian and I have had the pleasure of listening to Shadow of the Past, which is one of the Companion Chronicles featuring Caroline John. She had a chance to do a number of Companion Chronicles with Big Finish. Uh, To date, four have been released, as well as I think she played uh, a part that wasn't Liz Shaw in one of the main range stories early on. But here in Shadow of the Past, she is playing Liz Shaw as an older Liz Shaw who returns to Unit Vault 7573 in Whitehall to revisit a past adventure for a present-day reason. Liz Shaw is a companion that I'm not hugely familiar with, which I think may be many fans feel because she didn't do a huge amount of stories. I know Spearhead from Space very well, um, and obviously Michelle's favourite, the Silurians, but not a huge number beyond that. Um, So it was really nice to get an opportunity to spend some time very much focused on her character and to learn a little bit more about her character. And I think this was done very well. Uh, Carolyn did a great job of narrating. There's some really lovely evocative scenes, particularly early on in the story, when she's travelling through the countryside and describing the, the, the landscape around her, which are very nicely written and very nicely portrayed by Caroline. Um, and then Liz's character comes over as a bit more three-dimensional than she maybe did sometimes on the TV series, where, admittedly, she wasn't the traditional screamer. She had that sort of different tack. I mean, we often talk about Sarah Jane as having been the first of the sort of uh, companions to stand up to the Doctor, but actually, if you go back and look at Liz Shaw, she very much tried to be his mental equal and to not be a screamer. Yeah, and, you know, Simon Garrier's great at writing characters and developing relationships, so this is a particularly good story for Liz Shaw. We learn not only about Liz, but we get to hear her reminiscences and thoughts about what the doctor was like and what the brigadier was like and what unit was like. And there's a whole kind of a poignant or melancholic sense to this, a a pathos that runs through it that is just lovely, and and Caroline John plays it beautifully. I'm told there are some half-dozen doctors these days all completely different, all completely the same. My doctor was more than enough for me. He had such an air about him, a lord among his own people. Tall, elegant, fancy jackets and capes. He'd spent centuries swanning through time and space, the whole universe as a grand tour. And then he was grounded, stuck filling in time with our pitiful species. The frustration he must have felt. He'd looked down his great nose at anyone in authority. And yet he was passionate and brilliant and funny. He worked with us, he helped us, and I worked under him. The things he could have taught us, if Unit had only listened. I could barely keep up with him, barely make sense of all that he showed me. And like an idiot, I walked away. There's very much an emotional arc through this story for Liz's character, which I don't think you really saw on the TV series. She, she was quite clinical and distant on the TV series, and you didn't get a huge amount of emotion out of her character. I think because she was trying to avoid the traditional screamy, uh, fearful companion. So here you actually get a lot more uh, depth to her character in terms of an emotional journey which she goes on. Uh, both within the unit family and then across the broader story, which is framing the piece, which was really nice to hear and very interesting. This is really a story about 
trust, which of course is a very emotional concept and uh, how much can Liz trust the doctor and if the doctor is provided the temptation to be able to escape his exile here on earth, you know, how does his loyalty to the human race play in versus his strong desire to escape the planet and all seen of course through through the lens of Liz's perspective. The thing inside, it wasn't human, was it? No. It's why I'm so keen to be in here, whatever the risk. I want to see what's inside this thing, the ship's contents as much as the pilot. But it's also the look in the doctor's eyes. Do I mistrust him? He can be so impetuous. He's difficult and forthright, but he wouldn't do anything stupid. Yet I can see it burning in him, that need to escape, to be free. Yes, and then it lays on... Uh, a classic sci-fi trope of the the trust story from the original short story Who Goes There, most famously made as The Thing by John Carpenter, with a, a shape-changing monster that can look like anybody, which is a theme we've seen in many other science fiction pieces, where who do you trust, who can you trust, can you trust anybody? So it's both within the story and then within the broader arc of what they're trying to say here. You know, the story, both in terms of the, the basic plot, is interesting, but certainly the depths of emotion and relationship that are explored here uh, make it particularly interesting. Of the Liz Shaw stories that I've heard so far, this is this is definitely my favorite, and I would I would strongly recommend it. Yes, and I find some of the big finishes, when they go into emotional territory, can become a little bit heavy. But this actually judges it very, very nice, and it's a, a really enjoyable story to listen to. If uh, you'd like to go and revisit the character of Liz Shaw uh, and just remind yourself of, of her place within the Doctor Who, this would be a lovely way of going about it. And it's interesting that we still have ahead of us, it sounds like, one more Liz Shaw Companion Chronicle. Looking on the Big Finish website, October will see the release of The Last Post. I'm heartened that uh, we have yet one more Liz Shaw story to enjoy. Thanks, Ian and Michelle, for looking at that uh, piece of Caroline John's work. Uh, now, James, hmm. we made the decision uh, a few weeks ago to uh, do a group commentary in, in segments to celebrate our 150th on, on Dragonfire. Do you, uh, in retrospect, think this was a wise decision? Well, if ever there was a loaded question, eh? Um, I, I think it probably was a good decision. I mean, in all fairness, I like talking about any episode of Doctor Who. And why not Dragonfire? It's not something that we would normally spend an hour and a half talking about. So um, it was good to do something out of the ordinary for our 150th. But uh, I take it you're, you're referring to the reaction we've received in our, in our mailbag. I'm referring to the gigabytes of space which are now uh, <laughs> currently occupied with Dragonfire-related feedback. Uh, and one of those particular pieces of feedback came from a chap called George in New Zealand. Hello to the Doctor Who podcast. This is George from New Zealand giving you my thoughts and feedback on Dragonfire, which I've only just recently seen for the very first time. Going into Dragonfire, I wasn't expecting anything special. It's at the end of a season that, quite frankly, has been pretty poor. And I was thinking, oh god, it's going to be another one of these episodes I just have to sit through. I was surprised to find out that Dragonfire is actually quite good, and not 
only because it comes after some rather shocking episodes. It's good in its own respect. Not only does it start pushing the series towards slightly darker and more mature tones, but it starts to link the series with the modern series. The style of episode, the pacing, the writing feels like it's gradually, ever so gradually, moving towards the kind of thing we see with the 9th, 10th, and 11th Doctors. I found Iceworld to be realised very, very well. I really got the cold atmosphere coming across. It felt like a freezer shop, or whatever it was meant to be. It really nailed that aspect. I think there are some areas where the set design fails a bit, but this is probably due to the budget more than anything else. I think the wide open spaces of Iceworld, especially the room which the TARDIS lands in, it just looks used, inhabited, and not sterile at all. It really comes across as a living, breathing, working world. I really like as well the fact that the departing companion gets a whole story with the new companion. Far too often the old companion leaves and then the next one's not picked up for a, an episode or two. But in this one, you have them overlapping, and I like that you get this two-companion dynamic going on, and you can really see each companion's different strengths and weaknesses. And this leads into my biggest complaint of the episode, which is, even though I know Bonnie Langford wanted to leave, and there's reasons around that, and they needed to get rid of the companion, I don't think that the way she left was A, very good, or B, it just didn't make sense. I still can't really work out why she decided to leave, because she wasn't gonna go home, she was going with Glitz, and it's like, well, the Doctor surely is a better travelling companion than Glitz. What was her incentive to leave the Doctor? Maybe I've missed something, but I just can't put my finger on it. Granted, my favourite classic companion is Ace, so it's great to see Ace on board and Mel gone, because I wasn't a fan of Mel from the beginning. She did grow on me a bit. Overall, though, I thought it's a great story. It makes sense. It's well realised. It has some great characters, and the return of Glitz is welcome. And yes, it introduces, in my opinion, the best companion of the classic era. It's Sylvester McCoy finally being the Doctor in a more serious, darker, mysterious way. I hope these thoughts have been of use to you. I love the podcast, and I hope to submit more feedback in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, George. A brilliant piece of feedback there. And yeah, I mean, quite good, I think, is how you opened up your piece of feedback on, on Dragonfire. And I, I, I struggle to class it as quite good. Um, quite interesting, possibly. Quite different. Um, quite novel. Uh, but quite good. Mm, wouldn't be high up on my list of ways to describe that story, I don't think. I, th I think I'm with George in that, uh, and, I, and I've said this, this is becoming my, my hobby horse, that, um, uh, that your expectations are lowered so far uh, by Dragonfire, by Dragonfire's reputation, that when you come to it, it, it surprises you that, that it's not as bad as everyone has led you, led you to believe. It's, it's certainly darker than uh, the way the production would have you believe. Um, and, and I agree with George about the companion handover. I quite like the fact that, um, that it's almost like uh, it's the passing of a baton, that they have an episode to work together, uh, and, and you see the transition. Um, and I also agree that, um, that you know, why did Mel have to leave? Was it just, just so Sylvester McCoy could, could do his audition piece? But if that is the reason, then that's as good a reason as any for her to leave. Oh, I mean, I suppose it's better than marrying someone like King Yukanos, uh, <laughs> which of course they did with um, with Perry. Um, I'm, I'm glad they didn't pair off Mel and Glitz. Um, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, you've, you've really got to go some to think those two have got any kind of future together, either as friends or anything else, to be honest. 
Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, we're obviously, as viewers, left to imagine uh, what their life may, may have been. Maybe they did settle down and have lots of little dibbers. We don't know. I sincerely uh, hope not. It really, really <laughs> is awful. I'm sure the baby grows would be extremely spotty. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of other things that George mentions as well, certainly about the, the style of the story and the pacing and, and, and kind of kind of holding Dragonfire up as a forerunner to new Doctor Who. I, th- I think, in all honesty, that's wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really can't see um, Russell T. Davis or Stephen Moffat sitting down to watch Dragonfire and thinking, yes, we can try and emulate all of the good superlative points about this story into new Who. Um, I think it might actually have worked the opposite way around. And I think it was du- during the um, conversation you had with, uh, with Ian Leeson, um, mm. During the commentary of part three, you you mentioned that there are some extremely dark moments uh, in this story, and how it just doesn't sit right next to all of the slapstick, and and that's something that simply doesn't happen within you. Who you get the contrasts told out or played out far far better. It, it's almost as though someone's giving it a little bit of thought, whereas in Dragonfire, it's just bang bang bang. You know, it's it's this is an idea, we're going to record it, we haven't got time to even give it a moment's review, let's transmit it. So I don't think Dragonfire is an example uh, that the production team have looked at today. I I would look to stories like Survival, for instance, for that. Well, I I think George is right insofar as as it's a turning point uh, as as to the way the show is made and the way the stories are told. And and it, it sort of shows Andrew Cartmel's influence finally come into the fore uh, and and his vision for the show sort, sort of taking over so in, in that respect it is, it's a transitional episode I think I think fans certainly see it as such but there are only very very subtle differences to this Doctor in Dragonfire than there were to the pre- preceding stories the three stories in this season you know there, I think people see Sylvester McCoy when he comes out with a straight line you know, it's not comedic or or slapstick in any way. There's no silly humour involved in it. People think, oh, he's making a turn uh, to try and turn a character a bit darker. No, he's just saying a line normally, that's all. I don't think you get to see the real Dark Doctor until the next season, um, and that's where you get all the mystery come into it. Uh, So I I think maybe, but maybe McCoy had reached the pinnacle of, uh, of, of slapstick in, you know, perhaps... Paradise Towers or or even Delta. Um, Dragonfire was just a slightly more serious story, but it was still very, very zany. Well, thank you very much, George, for that feedback, and uh, we look forward to your promised further feedback. Moving on, now this is where the mailbag is bulging. Um, We received some feedback about our least favourite episode. Just in case you haven't got round to listening to those episodes of the DWP yet, you're looking for episodes 146 and 147, where we go through each era of Doctor Who and highlight which stories we like the least. And our first piece of feedback is from Daniel, and he says, I'm writing to tell you how much I loved your worst Doctor Who stories podcast. It was fantastic in every sense of the word. I seem to agree with everyone except for Michelle. How could she pick the Silurians and Image of the Fendal, a personal favourite of mine? Well, anyway, thanks. And could you possibly do a Guilty Pleasures episode on the Doctor Who podcast? Just a suggestion. Well, well, thanks very much, Daniel, for your feedback. And I, I think you probably remember from when Michelle and I had that conversation, I was horrified at her choice as well. Uh, but um, but in stark contrast to that, we've we've had another piece of feedback from another listener, 
about the very same choice, haven't we, Lisa? We have, uh, and this one's from Andrew, and he says, I'm going to have to agree with Michelle, the Silurians was too long and badly written, as with every time he encounters them. Uh, the Doctor says the wrong things and exacerbates the situation. The second in command is irrationally angry for no reason, a common failing of old who. And the music is awful. One of my least favourite Pertwees, too. Ironically, The Mutants is one of my favourites. <laughs> so a complete converse opinion there. But uh, so, so what do you think, uh, Lisa? Silurians badly written? Uh, certainly not badly written. Uh, it, it, it was uh, it was amongst one of the first that uh, that converted me to poetry when I realised how solidly written we were. How uh, the casts were, were were incredible. There was, there's so many faces that you see in old in, in old Pertwee episodes that have gone on to greater things. I think it was Jeffrey Palmer who I think makes a couple of uh, appearances, and and they're very well acted. They're, they're solid adventures. Uh, the only point I could possibly agree with is that it was perhaps strung out a little bit too long. Uh, it, it does seem to to flag in the middle as, as some of these six parties do. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've talked about story length on so many occasions. Certainly, in the, even in the last podcast we recorded, we talked about whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing that uh, a story can span, you know, a number of episodes. I mean, and I think it's it's really important when you consider the context in terms of the date when this was transmitted. The Silurians was never supposed to be watched seven episodes all at once. Mm. Never. It was supposed to be seen once a week. You have to remember at the time that the BBC didn't value Doctor Who anywhere near the amount the fans or the BBC value the programme now. I mean, it's it's the flagship show pretty much on BBC One. Everybody wants to know when, when Doctor Who's coming back. And, and certainly we even get emails here at the Doctor Who podcast, when is Doctor Who coming back? And uh, I think people are quite surprised when I email back and say, I've got no idea. But um, <laughs> I, I think when you look at something like the Silurians, yes, it's two and a half hours or thereabouts if you watch it all in one go. But try to watch it an episode at a time, give it a couple of days in between episodes, and I think your viewing experience changes massively. I think you're absolutely right, and uh, I think as Who fans we want to sort of over-consume, and when you have the whole thing on on disc, uh, you watch one episode and and it, it really grabs you, it's exactly like when you were a child, only you've got to remember that you couldn't watch the, con- the, the conclusion to the cl- cliffhanger the following like 30 seconds mm, later when mm. you were a child and part of the joy of Doctor Who for me when I was a kid was that because you, you knew the cliffhanger was coming the slow build <laughs> and then the music would come in and then you knew you had to wait a week and, and it was that it was for the last the, the last couple of scenes of the episode would be emblazoned on your memory for the rest of the week until you saw the conclusion and when we have them uh, so easily available on DVD it's easy just to try and ho- to hoover them up uh, in an evening and I think on the longer ones you, you, it's, it's as much your concentration perhaps as the uh, failings of the of the story that, that play a part in, in you losing interest at that point. Oh true, I mean you mentioned earlier that you'd watched Inferno uh, fairly recently, mm-hmm. did you watch all seven episodes in one evening or two evenings? Oh. No, it, it, we did it. We did do it in two evenings. But this mm. is the thing; it's like a drug to us. You know, we get a taste, we want some more, and when it, it's it's all you've got to do is press play all, and there it is, all for you. <laughs> Will you try that with Trial of the Time Lords and see how you go? Do you know, I, I think I quite love that, and this brings me on to a point that uh, that Daniel made about the uh, uh, guilty pleasures episode. Yes, indeed. Oh, I, I have so many. Well, I, I don't 
see them as being guilty. No, nor but, do I. Not at all. Just just pleasures, but innocent pleasures doesn't really work very well. No, it doesn't. But it's it's other people that that, that make me feel guilty. But try the time, Lord. I'd quite I'd be quite happy to sit and watch that in one sitting. Oh well, I would with Delta and a Bannerman. <laughs> no trouble at all. In fact, you know, we've, we've been thinking about having a Doctor Who podcast event at some point, and perhaps that's what we need to do. We just need to get together and watch some really really derided classic Doctor Who with some alcohol and see how it goes. Just record yeah. the results. Fresh eyes. I think that's. We should do that. Sounds fantastic. I think the only way, and and again, Trevor mentioned this a little while ago, I think he said if you could have one wish, it would be to forget every single classic episode of Doctor Who and start watching them all over again. And I think if you're able to do that, maybe alcohol is the answer. Maybe that's the only way in which you can do that. Completely try and forget a story and then watch it again. Our next piece of feedback is a piece of audio feedback from my friend, Dr. Phil, at the Adventures in Time, Space and Music podcast. Hello, everyone of the DWP. I loved the latest episodes about least favorite stories and actually thought some of the discussions were rather um, thought-provoking. I was the only story that I really had a vehement agreement about disliking was the latest Christmas special, which I felt, in, as a viewer... I sat down after Christmas excited to see it, and I thoroughly felt insulted um, by it because of the quality. It felt like Planet of the Dead for me in, in a way that, that it was like it was nothing special about it being special. Um, but, you know, especially considering how, in, in my humble opinion, that I thought that A Christmas Carol was a very strong one despite, you know, jumping the shark you know, flying shark uh, that many people complain about. I did find in ways when listening that I would almost yell back at uh, my podcatcher, you know, defending certain stories, you know, but but, but often um, there, there were no surprises which ones I wanted to defend. But nonetheless, I would say, while stories like Love and Monsters and Fear Her are very, very easy to pick, those those I find, I in, in, in my heart, I find forgettable that I don't go back to watch them. While I agree with Ian um, about the end of time is that that I feel offended and in a way regarding the end of time, I feel that David Tennant's end of his era is so cheated. And that's one of the reasons why I don't often return to the end of time, despite the fact that I love the secondary cliffhanger when it's like, oh, you know, Timothy Dalton, Gallifrey, this is great. The opening of the second part. Great. You know, and I remember listening to the documentaries about the tone meetings of how impressive and important they wanted to make this finale, but the scripting was just non-existent. And nonetheless, I'm sorry to just come on and complain because you guys have really had a lot of food for thought, and I appreciate that. And so I won't take up any more of your time. But keep up the great work as always. Listen every episode, and I find every one of them thought-provoking. And glad to hear the growing cast of lovely people and lovely commentators you guys have on the show. You know, Ian and Michelle, to Lisa and welcome Tom, James, Trev. It's really an enjoyable listen always. So thanks for your time, and uh, keep up the great work. Bye-bye. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Phil. I mean, wasn't that a nice piece of feedback? Uh, Phil is a very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you listeners out there don't know uh, who Dr. Phil is, then uh, he does a podcast which is a, a, looks at solely at the, at the music of Doctor Who. Uh, not only that, but he looks at uh, the composers that made it. And it's a fabulous little niche podcast. That, uh, that, have you had a listen, James? Um, yes, 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 I have. And, and it, it's strange, and I'm only saying hesit- being hesitant because music is not one of the niches or one of the things about Doctor Who that I am personally interested in. But I have heard, I have listened to a couple. I listened to, I'm trying to remember which episode 
that Phil was looking at. It may possibly have been Logopolis because I do quite like the score for the um, for the t- for the season eighteen, frankly. But in particular, Logopolis and then Castrofalva the following year. And I've never heard such a detailed analysis. I think I think Doctor Phil is a doctor because he's a doctor in some kind of music. It's really rare finding a Doctor Who podcaster who knows what he's talking about. Mm, yeah, and it, well, he delivers uh, very uh, a, a sort of listenable lectures, short lectures on uh, interesting lectures on, on the music of Doctor Who. And he's made me look at the show in a, in a slightly different way, and sort of the, the importance that music did play. Uh, so more so perhaps in the classic series than it than it does today. Yeah, quite possibly. I I, I tell you what I've really noticed um, in in some of the big finish, and and that is how important the music is to any given story. And I think. There was a lot of emphasis, certainly in the new series, on the mix, the sound mix. Everyone was complaining about Murray Gold's music, and it wasn't really Murray Gold's fault. It was whoever decided to play it so loud you couldn't hear what the characters were saying. <laughs> it was they, they were at fault there completely. But some of the big finish scores now are, are brilliant, and they re- they isolate a lot of the music and they play it as one track at the end of CD one usually. And uh, it's something that we're going to have to remember to play a sample of. I think when we do our next. Uh, Big finish episode. But anyway, um, going back to Dr. Phil's points, um, yes, I do completely agree with you. I think the doctor, the window, the cupboard and the sink or whatever it was, uh, it was probably the worst 11th Doctor story for me. And it's certainly something that uh, I can agree with Trev about wholeheartedly, although I would stop short of drawing comparisons to Planet of the Dead, which I actually quite liked. And I know I'm in a group of about two people here. but um, who's, the, who's the other one? Um, I think Michael, our old tin <laughs> dog. I think he quite liked it, but he'll probably email me now and say, no, I didn't. Um, but I, I like that story. What, what did you think comparing it to, um, to last year's Christmas special? Well, I, I suppose I suppose I, I enjoyed them both equally, uh, and, and that is to say, not uh, not a hell of a lot. Uh, <laughs> the Planet of the Dead w- was nice because we hadn't had any Who for a while, and uh, I, I was watching. I was I was disappointed as I watched it because it, it just it didn't hit the buttons for me right from the moment where um, because it was it was shown at Easter. We had the Easter egg. Uh, which was pulled out on the bus, and that seemed a bit crowbarred in. So I, I'd, it had already lost me at that point, uh, and it didn't push all my buttons, and I, I was left feeling a bit like a bit deflated. Whereas Widow in the Wardrobe, I seem to remember quite enjoying it on on the day, on the day itself. And in that sense, it was kind of it was an, an ephemeral episode of Doctor Who for me. I, I've had no desire to go back and watch it since. Mm. Uh, every negative point I've heard anyone make about it, I, I can't disagree with. But actually, on the day at the time it was shown when I had consumed a quantity of, of liqueur uh, and was, was sipping on a nice port eating a, a mince pie with a with a paper with an ephemeral paper hat on uh, I, I think I quite enjoyed it so perhaps that's the um, the equipment you need to enjoy um, last year's Christmas special <laughs> you need <laughs> to be drunk right. wearing a paper hat it has a very specific demographic that episode <laughs> yeah well Planet of the Dead I think is, it does work it's um it's a homage, you could say, to pretty much every single Hollywood blockbuster 
ever made. Um, there were so many rip-offs in that episode, it's unbelievable. But I, on the whole, I, I found that to be more of a, a feel-good episode than um, than Dr. Window. Ugh, I keep calling it Dr. Window, and then I just have to carry on with other kitchen appliances. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Love of Monsters and Fear Her, again, Dr. Phil says it's easy to poke fun at those, and I, I suppose it is. It's only because the circles in which Doctor Who fans move in it seems like a huge universe and it seems like the totality of opinion about an episode but of course it isn't it's such a a, a small percentage of the total viewing statistic and the majority of people who I've spoken to who aren't into Doctor Who anywhere near as much as as I am really enjoyed things like Love and Monsters and they thought David Tennant carrying the Olympic torch cheesy as it was <laughs> but they loved it and that's got to get a run out fairly soon given the fact that uh, you know, that's soon to become a future historical. Yes, yeah. But there's, there's an episode of Doctor Who for everyone. Um, and there's an aspect of Doctor Who for everyone. Um, people who don't like Doctor Who just don't realise they don't like that they like Doctor Who. Uh, that's... <laughs> I wish that was true. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it, I think it is. I think there's something in it that, that will appeal to everyone. Or there is an era or there is a style that it's been done in. Uh, and by that very nature, sometimes it won't be... It won't be it won't push your buttons. It won't be what you're into. But stick with it. You know, the, 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 there's always a good episode around the corner. And I think the, the, what I deem to be subjectively the good episodes far outweigh the, the, the ones that people say are bad. Thanks, Dr. Phil, for that feedback. And we have one more piece of feedback about our least favourite episodes. This is from Andrew once again, and it's, uh, you know, moved on. Um, I, I think I think he sent his first piece of feedback after he'd heard Michelle and I uh, do our episodes, and then he listened to Tom and Trev, and he sent a slightly longer email. So uh, <laughs> here we go. Well, for a second time, I have to write in on a side of controversy... I may not consider Genesis of the Daleks to be the worst story of the first five Doctors, but I'd have to rate it just as far down there as Tom did. The iconic wire-touching scene was a letdown and completely undercut by the fact that he just about goes and does it anyway next episode, which no one ever talks about. Hmm, not sure that happened actually, perhaps that's why. Uh, the, the plot was dull and meandering, the crisis unengaging, it was perhaps my biggest letdown in the entire Baker era. Nothing worked the way it was supposed to, or engaged me. So 100% agreement on the weaknesses and fandom major overrating of that story. And yeah, I mean, I, I would actually agree with Tom as well, in as much as the Genesis is highly, highly overrated. But is it the worst story of the first five eras of Doctor Who? No. For me, not a chance, Mr. Tom. What are you talking about? <laughs> He's caught in controversy with that one. This is just, it's its obviously not the worst. Uh, it. It, it's undoubtedly overrated because I remember for a while it was marketed with a sticker on the front saying and voted number one Doctor Who story. Uh, it's, it's not that, but it is fabulous, uh, and I, I I I really rather enjoy it. It, it, it suffers from from the, the, the you know because it's a, a long one. It suffers from that that sag in the middle again that we were talking about. Well, but, yeah. Uh, aside from that introduction of Davros, it's nice to see the the the. Well, for want of a better term, Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah, I mean, I I like the story very much. I think Davros is probably the best in this story that he ever, ever managed to achieve to date. And I I just really liked it. I mean, anything with Harry Sullivan in is always fun to watch, even if the plot suddenly slows down or or sags, as you say. Mm. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I, I think fandom built Genesis' reputation up so much that it almost became impossible 
to actually enjoy this more than fandom would expect you to once you've seen it's almost the opposite of what you were talking about earlier you know the the work the roster reputation um a story has uh, the 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 more likely you are to enjoy it when you get around to watching but um but as i said it's nowhere near the worst story in the first what 20 years or so of doctor who um isn't it strange how how fandom has that effect it's like fandom is 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 an organic thing and it it changes our opinions uh, because we are part of fandom it's like being part of a a tidal current you know, we we eat away at some stories so their reputation is completely degraded and then we come back to them and we appreciate them anew and we think oh, they're not as bad as they were and then we raise uh, serials up to, to the highest uh, platform and then you know, we enjoy knocking them down again and then we, we pick at them isn't it strange how it's this is ebb and flow of what we consider it to is be classic strange. yeah I, I do think it's probably something quite common to fandom though and I, I don't think it's Doctor Who specific at all if you get a, a community or a group of individuals who are you know have a common denominator then of course there's going to be a lot of opinion out there to listen to. Now, if you're a particular fan of, I don't know, something else, I'm trying to think of something. Uh, maybe even Hitchhikers. Um, you know, that was that was a little bit later, 1980s thereabouts, or even Blake Seven. You know, you'd have to go out of your way to try and find different fan opinion on it. It wasn't as popular as something uh, as iconic as Doctor Who became. Um, but, you know, you could watch that without any any baggage. Whereas today, you know, even before you sit down and watch an episode of brand new Doctor Who, all you've got to do is go on Twitter and you'll find some people who have had very valid reasons to see the episode in advance saying... Or oh, this is a good one, you know. You know, mm. and that in itself, it's almost impossible to to not be influenced by that in some way. Your expectations are managed by someone else, and mm. I, I think perhaps it is, you know, a factor or a sign of the times that we unfortunately are um, a living in from a Doctor Who fan's perspective. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's incredible the effect that um, that just a, a passing phrase or, or, or reading a, or see even seeing a, a, that a DVD has got a three star review on Amazon just before you buy it influences. You think, oh, well, I, I'd heard that was a good one, but it's only got two stars, so it, it can't be any good. And you go into it with your mind obviously slightly changed. No, I think that's it? true. But had I mean, had there not been such a big appetite for Doctor Who fans to find out what other Doctor Who fans think, then this podcast wouldn't be as successful as it is. So I'm, I'm not so keep it up. <laughs> indeed and uh, I I do think Genesis is on the the schedule um, over the next coming months or so where Tom will be placed in the dock and asked to justify himself Uh, so I I look forward to that episode okay now you may remember a few episodes ago well actually it was slightly more than a few episodes ago now Trevor and I were doing the very same thing that Lisa and I are doing at this moment in time and that was going through the mailbag and we played some feedback we received from someone who had been to school with Peter Purvis, and we put a call out there to say, well, has anybody else uh, been to school with someone or know of somebody else who has attended school with someone we now watch on our telly screens? And we got a message from Greg in Swansea. Take it away, Greg. Although I myself had no famous Doctor Who people at my school, my son's school, which is Alpha in Swansea, did have a very famous Doctor Who pupil, no less than Russell T. Davis himself. Now, Russell's maths teacher was also my son's maths teacher. And he told us one time of when he opened his exercise book to find that he hadn't been doing his maths work, but had in fact been drawing comical caricatures 
of all the other members of staff to the delight of all the other pupils. I don't know what the consequences were for that, if any, but that's my only tale of famous Doctor Who pupils. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Now, James, was that was that Rusty Davis? <laughs> I love the Welsh accent. <laughs> and, and particularly that you know, the South Welsh lilt is fabulous. But I, I'm not entirely convinced that that isn't Rusty Davies. I, I think he might be playing with us. Well, you think he might have deliberately notched his voice down a little bit? Um, and, I, and, yeah, a slightly off impression of himself, just to fool us. Well, maybe I'm, that's I'm, not, right. I'm not fooled, RTD. <laughs> well, Greg, I have to say, I, I think there's something about your voice that's just hypnotic and irrespective of what it was that you actually said I'm quite keen to go out for a drink with you I mean I just want to listen to your voice <laughs> and they do excellent beer in, in South Wales Brain, Brains Bitter Cardiff Brewery I, see I'm, I'm a Welshman myself uh, so, uh, kindred spirit I, I'm from Ponty, Ponty Breathe RTD I know it's you RTD it's you <laughs> But no, wonderful, wonderful piece of feedback. I suppose we ought to talk about what uh, what Greg actually said, and yeah, and wonder, wonderful to to hear that connection, uh, albeit extremely secondhand, with uh, with Russell T Davis. I'm I'm interested certainly uh, in the fact that your son found some caricatures, some some drawings, because Russell T Davis was a very and still is a very talented artist, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently he used to illustrate some some of his initial scripts as well, and I think they've been auctioned off now, and people can see his sketches of Daleks, and whenever he's brought back a monster or invented a monster, it's always started with him actually providing the concept art, you know, and, and usually, <laughs> from, from his book, it was on the back of a serviette or, or a napkin or something and he just thought well how about that and whoever it was with the ability to make these things come to life uh, took it away and 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 worked on it and developed it and I think that's just something else that isn't actually very well known uh, with him. No it, it makes you realise uh, what how his era was really his vision right down to him scrawling uh, designs on the back of napkins uh, you know it was really was his vision and and what was inside his head uh, came out on screen so it must be wonderful for him uh, as as a who fan to have had such um you know such creative control and such such a say on on the minutiae and the way things looked no, indeed, yes. I, I do quite like the idea of just scribbling something like a Dalek down, for instance, and just coming up with a couple of tweaks and seeing those small little changes being delivered on screen. I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating concept. But uh, but going back to, um, to to the subject that we talked about originally that stimulated this line of, uh, of conversation, we've had remarkably little feedback uh, from our listeners who... You know, either went to school with some of the actors we see on our screens or, or some of the actors and actresses who appeared in a classic series. So if indeed you have got a connection there or a member of your family has a connection, then let us know about it. Feedback at the Doctor Who podcast dot com. My uh, my sister came around the other day uh, and she said, um, you know, you know, the man who, who created the Daleks. <laughs> and I went, what, Terry Nation? And she went, no, no, that's not him. She she doesn't know anything about Doctor Who. And I went, yeah, I think it was, it was Terry, Terry Nation. She went, no, no, that, that wasn't his name. No. Um, Davros. No, no, no. <laughs> she, she, she'd, uh, her other half, my, my brother-in-law, had uh, sold a motorcycle to uh, Raymond Cusack. Is it Raymond yes, Cusack? Yes, indeed it is. Yes, yeah. the, the guy who, who designed them. And she was going, no, it wasn't him. Got no money at all. He was telling us all about it. 
<laughs> that's, just a, that's him. Oh, I would, I would so love to have met that guy. I, I, I'm particularly reminded of a, a very early um, Doctor Who Confidential, where they, when they did the redesign of the Daleks, and this was back when Doctor Who Confidential was actually interesting to watch. Um, and they took him to see uh, uh, see the studios and to show him the new design they'd come up with, and he was so underwhelmed. Mm. It, it, it was fabulous, but but he, he wasn't being rude. He it was his um, uh, he was designer's eye, and he was explaining why the new design didn't work. You don't have rivets um, because rivets are that's a, that's Earth technology. That's current technology. These are th- this is a, a, an alien species that have come from uh, they're they're way in advance of us in, in technology terms. They don't they don't do rivets, and it was all perfectly sound. You know, you could see because it. I think it's product design and that sort of design mentality uh, that he'd really, really thought about what he designed. Well, not to mention the fact that he hasn't received a single penny uh, from um, mm. um, from his creation, and uh, it, it was entirely his own concept. The way a Dalek looks now is is based purely mm. on on his work, and I, I don't know the detail of the story, but there there is a um, a DVD extra, and I couldn't for the life of me tell you on which disc it's on. But someone in their infinite wisdom decided to present Ray Cusack with a certificate crediting mm. him, you know, for creating the Daleks. And the guy, again, is so underwhelmed. He he actually looks at the guy or whoever it was who was presenting it, uh, almost as if he's saying, oh, "Are you having a laugh?" You know, and I think it must rankle still to this day. Well, of course it would rankle. You create something like the Daleks and and simply not receive any royalties whatsoever. Of Absolutely. course, it's going to be the bane of your life. And then someone <laughs> thinks, "Oh, we'll, we'll cheer the guy up. We'll give, we'll get a bit of cardboard, <laughs> put in a frame, and sign it. Give it to him as a surprise on camera." I'm surprised they didn't get it smashed over their heads. To be honest with you, I really yeah. <laughs> salt in the wounds, really. Yeah. But I mean, if, if we course we should make it clear that he wasn't done out of uh, any royalties by the BBC he was just under standard BBC he was a BBC staff well he uh, was staff contract yes, so, he was. so he wouldn't uh, he wasn't like he was entitled to anything really um, well no but, but you look at the way that the nation it, has stayed on the desk it, it is a shame but you look at the way that um, the nation estate has managed to still cash in on the Daleks and the way that even to this day the BBC need to request permission uh, to use mm. something that Terry Nation wrote about you know, and I, I know designing is slightly different to writing, but even so, the principle is the same. And I, I still think that Ray Cusack should have got considerably more than just a um, just a certificate or and a motorcycle, as it turns out. Now. Well, listen, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. It's been a lot of fun just going through the mailbag, going through the letters, reading thoughts and opinions that our listeners have and have been kind enough to send them to us. That's right, and making some space for fresh feedback. So don't forget Mm. to send your feedback in for future episodes to feedback at the Doctor Who podcast.com. And uh, next time we're talking toys, aren't we, James? Yes, we are. Uh, We're going to be talking all things collectible, I hope. Um, I think most people will call them um, toys, as you say. These are toy Daleks, toy Cybermen. How many TARDIS have you got sitting on your mantelpiece? I'm really looking forward to talking about how 
Doctor Who toys infiltrating the home uh, sits with people in the family who may not necessarily be as into Doctor Who as we are. I mean, I've, I've got a number of Daleks sitting on the shelves and my wife, is, I think she just can't see them anymore because they've been there for such a long time. And every now and again, I try and get another one in there and uh, she, she does notice. But, uh, but yes, toys, memorabilia, collections, all those kind of things are on the agenda for the next episode of the Doctor Who podcast. So until then, I'm off to play with my remote control Dalek. And I'm off to exterminate Leeson's remote control Dalek. And we'll see you next episode. Cheerio for now. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you.